0: Scripture reading to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read the first ten verses. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not of works lest any one should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them congregation of our lord jesus christ Our text this morning contains one of the darkest descriptions of the condition of people without the Lord Jesus Christ. Children of wrath, uh, referring there to the wrath of God, not as if God falls into a a fit of temper, but it's language that speaks of God's uh, settled uh, disposition of, of opposition and indignation. Uh, towards sin and sinners. Uh, This language is familiar to us uh, who are familiar with the form for the baptism of infants because it is uh, uh, first of those principal parts of the meaning and a proper understanding of baptism that we with our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore children of wrath so that we cannot be members of, of the kingdom of God unless we are born again. So this is a, a confession that we make about our own natural uh, condition. Our text goes on to speak of, of those outside of Christ as dead in trespasses and, and sins. And uh, to be honest, if there are visitors among us this morning who are unfamiliar with the, with the gospel and the Christian faith... Uh the fact is that you might be thinking right now, what a heavy, heavy kind of passage. What what a what a negative passage. Heavy on the negative here. Hardly a, a cheerful text. Hardly sounds like something uh upbuilding, hardly something that would promote a positive self esteem and actually as we as we look at uh, this passage we might say that it is it is heavier than it actually might sound to us upon first reading because you may notice that those words in uh, verse 1 he made alive those are actually inserted by the translators that's why they're in italics the translators thought in order to uh, clarify what's being taught here they 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 felt the need to insert these words there you, he made alive, but they're actually not in the original language. In fact, you have to get to first, verse five to read that reference of the grace that makes alive. But before that, you just have verse after verse that really, uh, explains the, the dreadfulness of our, of our natural condition in sin. We might ask, why does Paul carry on this way? Or you might even ask, why would we have a whole sermon just on the first three verses, which really make up our text for this morning? Verses that don't even really get to the good news, we might think. Why? Well, you recall what Lord's Day 1 says about what is necessary in order to live and die in, in true comfort. The comfort of belonging to Jesus requires a knowledge of our sin and misery that comes first. Jesus Christ Christ. His very name, Jesus, means Savior because He came to save His people from their sins. And without a a, a knowledge of sin, without an awakening to the reality of personal sin and guilt before God, people will not turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. They they might turn to Him uh, as a life coach to give them some help. They might uh, turn to Him uh, for some comfort in their their uh, troubles or their victimhood or they might turn to him for for the hope of heaven but if they do not turn to him as the savior from sin they do not turn to him truly in faith in who he is without the knowledge of sin people will not seek salvation. And again, that's not just a psychological observation that people won't seek help unless they feel their trouble. That's true. But we're not talking about simply a psychological observation. We're talking about what is a theological truth, something that is clearly taught in Scripture, that conviction of sin indeed is necessary if one is to seek salvation in Christ. He did not come to, uh, to save or to heal those who are well but to those who are sick. Those who are well do not need a physician. And there he is using the comparison of physical illness to speak of the the sin sickness of our fallen condition. And it's only in the awareness of that that people will turn to the Lord Jesus. But beyond that, and again, we're talking here about what's necessary for people to come to conversion. Beyond that, an appreciation of grace And uh, the motivation to gratitude also is continually deepened by a sobering, humbling realization of the depths of misery from which we have been delivered, and from which we are being delivered. And this dark description of sin here in Ephesians chapter 2 serves that purpose. Paul doesn't give this description in order to beat these people down. Now we've observed how throughout the first chapter of Ephesus there is this note of doxology and wonder and praise and that really doesn't come to an end at the end of chapter 1. Paul is describing the depths of misery, the terrible condition that had once marked these believers in order to magnify the riches of God's mercy and grace to them. God shows grace to children of wrath. That's our theme from this passage. It's a theme indeed that ought to capture the attention of anyone who is yet in sin and in unbelief. One who cannot sincerely and honestly confess uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. It ought to be a great encouragement because this passage addresses directly and honestly the reality of the condition from which God saves people. And for us who trust in the Savior, it ought to remind us and lead us to rejoice in the riches of God's mercy. God shows grace to children of wrath. God shows grace to those who otherwise are in a desperate condition. Now, often we use that, use that word desperate to describe our feelings. Feelings of desperation. But here, I'm not using it to describe a person's feelings, but... Uh, to describe their actual condition that is desperate in the sense of of being critical. They may be oblivious to it. They may not be aware of it whatsoever. But the fact is that outside of Christ, their condition before God is very, very grave. Dead in trespasses and sins. That's how this passage describes the condition of those outside of Christ. You've heard the expression of dead man walking. That's really a kind of awful description of someone uh, who has been condemned to death and is actually walking to the place of execution, walking to the gallows, walking to an electric chair, or whatever it might be, a lethal injection. Dead man walking. Here he comes. But the use of that language uh, doesn't describe someone who's actually dead. No, it's describing someone who's you might say is as good as dead because he's going to die. But that's not really what this passage means when it says dead in trespasses and sins in the sense that, well, certainly they're going to die and face judgment. That's true, but it's not talking about something that will happen to them, something that is inevitable. It's describing their actual condition at the time. Spiritually dead while they are living, while they are active, while they may be full of life and full of energy and full of enjoyments and full of all kinds of pursuits. It may describe those who might say, I've never been happier. It might describe those who feel liberated because they broke the bondage of belonging to a church that they felt was just beating them down restricting their freedom, making them feel guilty. And they have burst through those chains. And now they're living for themselves and enjoying the pleasures of sin. And they've never felt freer and happier. Without Christ, people are dead in and trespassed in sins. Whatever they might think of themselves. Without new life, without spiritual life from God, People are unresponsive. That's, that's what death is, right? People are unresponsive to any kind of stimuli. People who are dead in sins are unresponsive in faith, in love to God's word. They don't respond with godly fear. But rather they respond in ways that show a lack of understanding. They, they respond in ways that show a lack of true humility before God. Shows a lack of spiritual desires. And that's also the case with those who might do a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of religious things, a lot of good things. It's interesting. We'll, we'll consider this later that, that Paul includes himself as, as among those who once walked according to the course of this world and who was a child of wrath. Even though elsewhere in scripture, he says that touching the law, he was blameless. I recently read of uh this uh very wealthy uh aristocratic woman uh Selena of uh Huntington countess of Huntington a contemporary with the famous evangelist uh, George Whitfield and uh this this woman was was renowned for her for her goodness for for her purity for uh, her good works and her devotion but when she was seriously ill and, and, and facing death, so she thought, she came to realize that all her good works, all her goodness was insufficient to stand before uh before God's judgment. And she came to call upon the Lord for mercy, realizing her own sin and her need for grace. Actually became a very close uh friend of uh George Whitfield and, and renowned for her generosity, using her wealth to give to churches, using her wealth to organize uh, meetings in her expansive uh, dwelling places where Whitfield for a time would preach there twice a week and she'd gather all the rich and all the powerful people to hear the gospel. But she came to know her sin. She became alive. People might do many things, but apart from faith in Christ, these are these are just works of the flesh. They do not hear, they do not see, they do not taste, they do not think in spiritual ways. This is language that the Bible often uses. Uh, it's been called sensory malfunction language. Having eyes but not seeing, having ears but not hearing, having hands but not touching feet, but not walking. Actually, the Bible in a couple places uses that to describe idols, images that people would would construct. But then it says, and those who make them are like them. In fact, this language of having eyes, but not seeing, having ears, but not hearing, is often used to describe people that are unresponsive to, to God's word. They hear the words, but they don't really hear the words. They might perceive certain things, but it doesn't really get through to them. The prophet Jeremiah uses such language when he says, Hear this now, O foolish people. He's speaking to the house of Jacob and in Judah, saying, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? No, they didn't. They they didn't fear the Lord. They didn't revere Him in true faith. People might hear a lot of things, but they do not hear the word so as to receive it into their hearts. They do not feel the evil of their sins so as to be repelled by it and want to be rid of it. They don't perceive anything attractive or compelling in Christ so as to call upon him. They do not relish. They have no taste. They do not delight in the gospel so as to receive it in the love of it. They don't love holiness so as to pursue it and desire to grow in true holiness. That's a condition of spiritual death, a condition of spiritual inability, right? Those who are dead, they can't do anything, obviously. But that's true of those who are dead in trespasses and sins. They do not respond in spiritual ways, and they cannot respond because they're spiritually dead. The Bible often uses such language to describe the, the desperate condition that characterizes people apart from almighty grace. Those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. The natural man does not receive the, spirit, the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. No one can come unto me except my Father draw him unless one is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. That is all language of inability, showing the desperation of our natural condition through which the grace of God comes to us. Now again, it may be that uh, someone hearing this rather dark and hopeless sounding description of who we are by nature might object and think that just really sounds exaggerated. It sounds insulting. I may not be a Christian, but I have my values. I may not be a, a believer, but I, I pray. And I may not believe in your religion, but I believe in God. I dare say that most pray, people pray at some time or another when they're in trouble. And there are many, many people who have values that are quite commendable and quite high and the devil believes in god also and he trembles so the kinds of things that people would resort to they really they really don't uh, uh provide any evidence of of spiritual life or someone might say oh yes but i can change and in response to that i might say prove it prove it begin to love god sincerely and truly Begin to love His Word. Begin to love His will. Begin to delight in His worship. Begin to deny yourself. Begin to live for Christ and for His kingdom. Are you really alive for such things? Do you have a heart for such things? Does that describe your aims and your feelings? Well, if so, give God the glory because that's the result of his grace that brings us to endeavor after a deeper love for God. But if those questions might expose the reality that they do not ring true with your own life. Well, then you come to Christ in all your hopelessness and your helplessness and your inability to change. And you come to him for grace, for grace to you as a desperate sinner who cannot save yourself. And when you come to realize that and you come to Christ in that way, when you call upon him, then you will be saved. Yeah, it's a desperate condition that characterizes our lives apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But furthermore, and again, this is already involved, but we have to give attention to it because the text does. And that is that it's a wicked condition. In other words, spiritual death, yes, is spiritually inactive entirely. But that doesn't mean that that life is somehow uh just passive It's not simply a passive condition of misery, but it's a life that is very much active in sin. Dead in trespasses and sins. No one lives a motionless life. We are all indeed on, on a pathway. Our lives are characterized by movement. That's why the language of walking, progression, is so typical of the way the Bible describes life. But the problem is, is that without Christ, everyone deviates from the path. Everyone goes down byways and hidden pathways. And that's really what trespasses means. It means to get off the path. And no one is neutral. Every life, every life abounds in thoughts, inclinations, desires, words. Deeds. And all of these things, measured by God's law, they miss the mark. That's what sins mean. It means to miss the mark. And you notice that it's plural. doesn't say sin. Not simply uh, a condition, but sins. Specific actions, thoughts, words, and deeds. Look at all the active words in our text, in which you once walked, in other words, you once went from day to day in a lifestyle that was a characteristic of this lost world among whom we all conducted ourselves. That is our, our behavior, our conduct shows what drives us and probably boil down to its most simple component. We might say people are driven by their desires, right? Most basic definition of temptation is sin, uses such language in James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, bring forth death. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust, that is, you strongly desire, and you don't have. You murder and covet. Desires gone awry is what characterizes life apart from Christ. Paul distinguishes in our text also the desires of the flesh and the mind. And that's, that's interesting. Sometimes the word flesh... In Scripture, simply refers to our fallen nature, our, our our depravity that extends to every aspect of our of our personality and our being, our, our our affections, what we love and hate, the way we think, the things we choose. But here, in distinction from the mind, it, it appears to be addressing particularly the the fact that there are these sensual passions, there are uh, indulgences, there are. Uh, appetites and cravings of the body. In excess, sexual sins, gluttony, violence. But then there are sins of pride, ambition, and covetousness. And some people might be more inclined to one than to the other. Paul appears to have have uh, gained a kind of mastery over uh, the overt practices of sin. With respect to the law, he was blameless. But his heart was filled with pride. He had a superior attitude and he was actually persecuting Christians. Some might have an inclination to one or the other, but all of us by nature are guilty of both. Sons of disobedience. Again, that's a rather dark, comprehensive uh, description that Paul uses. It's like sin is just, it's like in our DNA. It runs in the blood. It characterizes those without God. And that's an active, wicked condition from which Christians are delivered, whatever their particular lifestyles and habits otherwise might be. And Paul goes on to describe it as an enslaved condition, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works, and the sons of disobedience. That's a reference to Satan, indicating also that uh, the, the very atmosphere of this earth is is uh, occupied by wicked spirits who are busy, mobile, active in this world. What does it mean to be in an enslaved condition? Well, we could speak even of the practice of sin. Remember Jesus' words where he says, He who practices sin is is a servant of sin or a slave of sin. Second Peter talks about those who promise themselves liberty but are themselves servants of corruption because they're overtaken by their desires and they're ruled by them. Our world uses the term addictions. And often it's a word that that tends to soften and we might say psychologize the fact that when we make idols of drink, when we make idols of sex, when we make idols of food or drugs or work, They become idols that are insatiable in their demands upon us. It's like our idolatrous desires create monsters that rule us and will not let us go and hold us in their grip. And then there is the devil. You know, our world is not really uh, secular as it's claimed. It's very religious. In fact, we might say demonically religious, increasingly religious. The course of this unbelieving world, whatever particular form it might take, is steered by the evil one. That certainly was the case in Ephesus, a city that was characterized, that was famous for idolatry. It had this great temple to uh, the goddess Artemis, Diana. And you remember in cha- uh, in chapter 19 of, of Acts, you can read how, how Paul and others went and preached the gospel, and a a great opposition was stirred up because they were viewed as a threat to the sale of idols. And there was a great uproar. The whole city was gathered together in the the theater proclaiming the greatness of, of the goddess Diana. For two hours it said they shouted, Great is the goddess of Diana! makes you wonder if there were people converted to Christ, who had participated in that course of the world, that idolatrous frenzy that really involves satanic delusion and power over the minds of people. Whatever the course of this world may be, whatever the the, the idols that rule people's lives, even wholesome and legitimate things like sports, legitimate enjoyments that people live for, Such that it really crowds out every other interest. Well, the evil one is behind those things as well. He holds people captive to do his will. That's how, that's how Paul describes, uh, Satan's power. In humility correcting those who are in opposition of God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. He is a murderer of souls, and he is a liar. That's how Jesus describes him uh, from the beginning. He works in the sons of disobedience, it says. Well, there's mystery involved here. There's mystery in the fact that Satan even can be active working in the lives of Christians. Isn't that the case with Peter? Right? When when Peter, Jesus explained to him the sufferings that he would undergo as he was uh, on his way to the cross, and Peter took him aside and said, far be it from you, Lord, this will not happen to you. Peter was motivated by love, wasn't he? He was motivated by feelings for Jesus' dignity and honor and well-being. Was he? Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan. And he rebuked Peter, you, "You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men." With every good intention, Peter was being used as a tool of the evil one to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, he may operate in the minds of believers, but he works in the sons of disobedience in such a way as to rule them. And John, the guy in the the Epistle of John, Paul concludes uh, his letter by saying, "We know that we are of God." And the whole world lies under the sway of the of the wicked one. Satan's lies deceive and his influence rules over people. So people unwittingly follow his designs. I say unwittingly, un, unknowingly, but that doesn't mean unwillingly. It doesn't mean that they're not responsible. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. So no one can say the devil made me do it. Yes, he exerts a tremendous power over people by his lies, his deceptions. But they're willing slaves of him as they follow their own desires that fit right in with his schemes to destroy their souls. And then finally, it's a common condition. It's a condition that we have by nature, a condition that is fallen and depraved, as as being human, fallen. And Paul is very intentional on this point. You, he says, in the plural, as Gentiles together, under the same guilt and under the same condemnation. And then he says, among whom we all once conducted ourselves, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, You know that a great theme of this book, this letter to the Ephesians, is the unity of the church. The unity of Jew and Gentile. And the unity of the church in Christ is the result of shared mercy, shared deliverance from the same plight, from the same natural condition. It's important to see this language in that light also in the service of the magnitude of God's grace in reconciling sinners to God and reconciling them to one another by the blood of Christ's cross. And that also means that there's no room either for pride in the church, there's no room for inferiority. It might be that new Christians uh, come to the faith and they They get to know members of the congregation and they think to themselves, oh, these people know so much and these people have been practicing Christian habits in their home life and their way of thinking about their jobs and in their habits and the way they raise their kids for so long. And I feel so ashamed and I, I don't measure up to these people and I don't know if I could ever get there. Well, be sure that none of us are as far advanced as you might imagine that we are. And as you get to know us, you'll also know that that we have our sins and failings and weaknesses. But the fact is that whether people are brought to Christ early in their lives or later on in life, whether they've been spared from a life of overt sin, spared from that or rescued from it, what we all have in common is exactly the same condition by nature and the same riches of God's grace. You might say, well, you know, there's not much in this text about grace. And, uh, yeah, we're going to get to that. And I took the time to explain this again because it is such important background. But I would not say that there's not grace proclaimed uh, in uh, these verses. Actually, it's proclaimed throughout. It's, it's uh, proclaimed in the, the tense of verbs that are used, such as were, Right? We all were children of wrath. We once walked according to the course of this world. We all once were in this condition. Children of wrath become children of God. Uh, Sons of disobedience, as we hear in uh, chapter 5, become uh, sons of light. Those whose lives were marked by uh, trespasses and sins are addressed in this book as saints. Holy ones whom God had set apart by grace. Those who walked according to the course of this world, those who walked in the way of the the scornful, well, now uh, they are called and enabled to walk circumspectly, wisely. And this language of were and once throughout this description of the reality of our natural condition magnifies the grace that makes a difference and delivers us from condemnation and the corruption and the ruling power of sin and unites us together as the Lord's people through Jesus Christ. Amen.